This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This podcast may contain explicit language, which is distinct from shall, and in point of fact, as to this specific episode you're about to hear, actually does not contain explicit language. It's Friday, August 12th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The week began in celebration, or at least contemplation, of the Inflation Reduction Act, and there was debate, robust debate, along the lines of, it won't reduce inflation, or the Wharton School says it will reduce inflation only after a year or so. And then we got inflation numbers in, and they were good. That's who engendered a debate. We don't have 0% inflation. We have 8.5% yearly inflation. Well, it depends on how you look at it. Well, I'm looking at it at zero. Only we didn't look at it because a week that started in, I'm not going to say hope, but at least in substance, has devolved into weirdness. This last week has been a Eugene Ionesco play where we are screaming about a black box, the contents of which we do not know, the import of which we cannot judge. But if you are on team must seize the box, that commits you to a belief that, I don't know, the fate of the world and nuclear weapons reside within It's as if they don't change the nuclear codes. I thought they changed the nuclear codes. They ask me to change my Travelocity password every six months. Don't you think they changed the codes? But if you were on team, the black boxes whose contents we cannot know should have stayed put, then you are committed to the proposition that carting away those boxes will make us, say it with me now, a banana republic. It feels like a, a third world dictatorship or a banana republic where the, once somebody goes out of power, the incoming regime persecutes and prosecutes the uh, the outgoing. Most Americans now, by the way, in both parties, believe we're living in a banana republic that was just described by Scalia. But it is now official. As of this moment in time, 21st century America under Joe Biden, is no better than a banana republic. That is the du jour insult. But look around the world, people. Israel, South Korea, France. Those leaders are always getting arrested. Sarkozy, Jacques Chirac, Filon, all tried, all convicted. France continues on. Nixon would have been convicted or at least charged, but Ford pardoned him. So, so much of the word unprecedented attaches itself to Donald Trump because the last worst president at least had the decency to drop the nonsense once caught. The black box test, it has been odd, it has been trying, it's not unserious, but the blather to verifiable ratio, ah, it's like NBA offseason, but for federal prosecutors. If you want other actual developments that deserve our attention. We do have those, unfortunately, because it looks like we have only fatwas, poxes, and polio to fall back on. On the show today, I spiel about how most of our discontent comes not from the facts of the news, but the pace of it. But first, Steakum is a thin-sliced frozen steak brand. But man, can Steakum tweet. 
The content of the Stakem Twitter account is by turns absurd, funny, and actually quite meaningful. It's touching. It truly is at times. How? Well, the answer is the man behind the Stakem account. He's Jason Alabach. How he turned a lunch meat Twitter account into an oracle and a touchstone. On the gist, we've had on senators, congressmen, presidents, though not of America, vice presidents, though of America, Academy Award winners, Nobel Prize winners. You know what we've never had on? We've never had on a thin piece of meat. But we do today in a form. Nathan Alabach is the creative director of Alabach Communications. What does that mean to you? Well, if you've ever been on Twitter, which you probably have, and navigated your way to the Stakem account. Yes, Stakem, the thin strip of delicious, but probably not great for you meat. You might find that Stakem has a voice and Stakem wades into many of the important issues of the day and Stakem's funny. And sometimes Stakem has some back and forth with Arby's and Denny's and what the hell is going on here? Well, to explain all of this is Nathan Alabach. Hi, welcome to The Gist. Mike, thanks for having me. It's the first time I've been uh, referred to as a piece of meat, I think. But uh, happy <laughs> that happy you for know it. of that that the ladies <laughs> haven't said behind your back. That's right. I prefer, yeah, I prefer it to my face. So it's yes, good. that's right. <laughs> it's it's not so much that I'm objectifying you as taking on the persona of Stakem. You literally objectified or foodified yourself. Take me and the listeners through the genesis of how you got to control that Twitter account and how that Twitter account came to have the voice that it did. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I kind of, I've been calling it brand personification for a few years now. Um, some people call it brand humanization, but this whole kind of weird trend where brands on social media, they, in a way, they want to act human. They want to, you know, be relatable and, and entertaining and, and come across like they're not a corporate entity, that they're the person behind the account trying to, you know, speak one-to-one -one with people in a way. Uh, so yeah, through our agency, like I, I started running the Stakem Twitter account in 2017. Within the first year, it went viral a few times for commentary on, on different subjects. Like in 2018, it went viral for, uh, we, we did this, what's now called like the millennial thread, which is just like a thread about uh, like the issues that young people face and why that may lead them to interacting with a brand like Stakem on Twitter. And then it just, yeah, just continued to snowball from there. So I definitely have a lot of questions about uh, the implications of this. But first, I want to just lay some more facts. Was Stakem a client of your company and you pitched them on this? Or did they come to you in a way seeking this kind of content out? It was a really weird way this, this whole thing panned out because by about July of 2017, we had uh, run up our ad budget with them for the year. So we had, we had a bunch of campaigns that were scheduled um, throughout the year and we were pretty much done by like June, July. So it just so happened to coincide with a slow period at the agency. So I had a lot of free time and in August of that year, Joe Rogan released his uh, 1,000th, I think it was, episode of his podcast where it had Joey Diaz and I think Tom Segura mm -hmm. on it. And uh, they told this story on that podcast about Stakem. Uh -huh. And people were were sending it to us being like, oh, this is crazy. Like Stakem got shouted out on this like, huge podcast. So we pitched to to the team there being like, hey, you know, 
we don't really have a ton of money right now to, to invest in this, but we could just jump on Twitter and see if there's there's conversations happening around this uh, podcast shout out. So that was the, the genesis of us jumping on the account. And then I had a bunch of free time. So I ran with it. I'm going to guess the fact that it was uh, Joe Rogan and knowing those two comedians, they were probably, you know, they weren't too serious. They were making jokes around Stakem. Uh It might have been a different uh, kind of content that you put forward as the Stakem account if it was the Red Table Talk and the Smith family uh, discussing Stakem, for instance. I w- I'm guessing. Oh, absolutely. It was it was Joey Diaz talking about how Stakem like made him fart in college, and you know, just some like absurdist stories that that were that were f- hilarious. But yeah, definitely not like the you know the brand friendly type of stuff. <laughs> right. So was Stakem the brand? itself i don't know you know we don't want to be associated with uh gaseousness they were definitely there, there was more hesitation in the early stages absolutely for engaging with any of this type of stuff and it took about i would say six to eight months of, of us exploring on the account for them to to loosen up the guardrails i would say but it, sure. in the beginning they, they just didn't take it that seriously because it was kind of like well, who's on twitter you know like twitter is kind of like seen as a a um an underdog platform versus like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. So it was kind of under the radar for a little bit. And then as it started to go viral, they started to pay attention to it and being like, ah, all right, let's, let's watch what we say here. But, but once it started getting really successful, they, they, they caught on to it. Well, who's on Twitter gives you an opportunity, right? They weren't taking it too seriously. They they probably had what, like twelve thousand followers? Oh no, before? it was less than a thousand, and they were okay. totally inactive. So there was like no right. like engagement on the account, which is yeah. So unless they did something that really redounded to the brand's embarrassment, which I'm sure they were a little worried about, there was almost nothing to lose. Exactly, and that gave you an opportunity. Yep, yep, plenty of room to play around, as as I would say. Now, in Finding the Voice, were you familiar with the more absurdist side of Twitter? Not just on brands, but, you know, what they call weird Twitter, guys like Drill, and uh, I enjoy the work of Pixelated Boat. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, like, I, I was familiar with a couple of the accounts, but I was not familiar of how broad that ecosystem really was and and the history of it. And that was actually, it's funny, it's funny you brought that up because it turned out when I got on this account that one of the first things I noticed was that they had blocked about 150 accounts in it. And I was like, ah, oh, this is really weird. And I was, I was going through all these accounts and they're all associated with weird Twitter. So I tried to figure out like, what was like the history to this account? Like some, <laughs> something must've happened that was uh, that that went terribly wrong on the Stakem account. That's right. That's right. Stakem has a past. <laughs> it's a, there, there's a whole, yeah, there's like this, this history of drama. There was a war at some point. <laughs> And, and uh, I went back through and, and found out that whoever was previously on the account, they got in this kind of skirmish with some weird Twitter users and started blocking them. And then uh-huh. the, the one bigger account, his, his, his handle is uh, Boner Hitler. This, sure. uh, this account um, <laughs> had a big enough following that started to kind of like rally people to harass the Stakem account for blocking it. So yeah. That started this whole kind of like, you know, effect where they were just blocking dozens and dozens and dozens of these accounts. And it got to the point where somebody actually, his name is John Hendren, he wrote an article for the uh, the forum site Something Awful about the Stakem Twitter account. So it kind of like iconicized it in that space. So they abandoned the account and it was years later by the time that I kind of jumped on and started to reclaim it a bit. So when I got on, I unblocked all these accounts and started to interact with them and sort of uh, turned the narrative around in a way that was more like playful and, and self-aware to all those issues and kind of won over some of those uh, those folks. 
Right. So I have to say, in the history of advertising or brand management from, you know, the dawn of it, whenever Edward Bernays uh, first decided to lend his insight into a brand up until, I don't know, 2017, the question of what should we do in terms of engagement with Boner Hitler had a very clear answer, which is do not engage with Boner Hitler. (laughs) And then at some point, the answer was, well, maybe there is a way to do this right. Um... I guess my question isn't what changed, like the whole culture changed and everything changed, but were you the first to notice that it had changed to the degree that a more or less wholesome family brand associated with lunch meats and maybe school cafeterias, that that brand was right and the culture had changed enough for that brand to engage with it in this way? Were you a pioneer in that regard? I wouldn't claim that. I mean, some people would claim that. I mean, there was definitely a few people before me prominently that... that, that... Would the Arby's account on <laughs> yes. your behalf claim that? <laughs> the, I mean, the Arby's account... So Arby's, years before I did this, in like 2015, they were doing like anime references and gamer references. So they were pretty attuned to some of like the Twitter culture stuff. And the other, the big one that everybody points to is Denny's. Uh, they had a... Yes. The, Denny's Diner had a Tumblr account in 2013 that then translated to some stuff on Twitter. So that was very esoteric and, and engaged with um, like online gamer Tumblr culture, which is very uh, extremely online, as I would say. Like e- even you referring to the, the weird Twitter stuff, I mean, for people who don't know, weird Twitter comes from this kind of like early internet culture of, of forum users on sites like Something Awful, where it was, it was back when it was, the internet was still the Wild West. So to give listeners context, I mean... The 4chan as a website actually came from something awful. Um, the the founder of 4chan used to be a forum user on something awful. And he was booted from the from the platform, and then he went on to start his own thing, which was 4chan. So if you can imagine it, like back then, but it, it wasn't really as evil as 4chan has become. Yeah, no, exactly. It was it was a lot it was a lot more edgy and and trolly, but there was less um it was less integrated with mainstream culture the way it is today. Right. Like, and there wasn't the assumption that it could ever be. You know, these were people talking to themselves and they knew it. Yes, these were like like very tech oriented people in a time where there weren't that many tech oriented people. So it's like a lot of like programmers, web developers, like people that were there's their jobs were to be online in like the nineties and the early two thousands. So this was like before nerd culture was popular. So was there a big hit? Was there uh, a post that you were so deluged with reaction it couldn't be ignored anymore? The, well, the first moment that, that had its kind of viral uh, moment in the sun was the, the, the hashtag verify Stakem campaign, which was the sort of uh, punching up grassroots thing that we were doing through the account where it started off just as a joke because Stakem's account had no followers and it didn't have a blue check mark and it was at the time in 2017 when um when Twitter was under some some fire because they had verified uh Richard Spencer's Twitter account the mm-hmm. the white nationalist so that was our rallying cry it was like you know Twitter will verify Nazis but they won't verify this this meat brand that's been around since the 70s so we kind of yeah. ran with that as a joke, and then it started to unironically pick up steam and eventually got us like thousands of followers. And it must have been a slow news day when it went viral, but um, we ended up getting verified in January of 2018. And like AP News picked it up, and then the New York Times aggregated it from there, and then the USA Today did a story on it. It became this like huge story that we were kind of like 
totally thrown back by. We did not know it was going to uh, take off the way it did. And um, that was the moment that everybody internally was like, all right, we got to start taking this account seriously. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, it stopped being ironic and it you uh, started being earnest and taking some stances and not stances in terms of this senator bad, this senator good, but trying to make, again, I'll return to the word earnest points about thinking or earnest points about decision making. Um, Well, a few questions about that. Tell me about, if you could, the genesis of that and if you think that helped the brand or was that more an expression of, because I've seen some of your writings outside the brand, just an exp- putting more of yourself into the tw- uh, Stakeham Twitter account. It was, it was definitely both. Um, I felt that, yeah, like you said, it's, uh, earlier on, I think a lot of the draw to the brand was the more absurdist style content. But then as we went, we started making this kind of like funny commentary about current events. And then we started to get these replies from people that were like, oh, Stakem should run for president. You know, like, why isn't why isn't Stakem one of our leaders in this type of thing? So yeah. we started to... Like, you'd really want to elect a 35-year-old piece of meat, but anyway. <laughs> exactly. I, some people do, I guess. Um, <laughs> but we started to play into that then to be like, all right, you know, people want to hear more commentary on, like, current events or whatever. So we just started to play with that a little bit. And then eventually that led to, like I mentioned earlier, the kind of big... Uh, thread we did at the end of um, 2018, which was this kind of commentary on millennial angst and all the issues that younger people are facing and how that leads to a lot of weird outcomes, one of which being many millennials engaging with this frozen meat brand on Twitter, like sending, for example, like a lot of these kids would send these uh, really long, um, sincere messages to the account asking for life advice we had we got messages from like kids talking about having eating disorders, having abusive parents, like being broke and like getting kicked out of their houses, just like really just like vulnerable random stuff that we you know we had no place to really uh, comment on. And it was the situation where it was like, man, I mean, if these kids are are thinking like the only place they have to turn is is a frozen meat brand, that's not that doesn't say a lot of uh, a great stuff about where where we're at uh, societally. So we wanted just to kind of speak to that. And that really resonated. And you would acknowledge that every, you know, eight tweets or anything like, don't listen to me. I'm just a frozen piece of meat. That was a huge part of it. Yeah. Like this, the self-awareness of just being like, you know, I mean, just remember that this is coming from a company. The company wants to sell you something. You're never really shying away from the fact that the goal ultimately was, you know, sales and awareness. And I think people took it, it had this kind of anti-marketing effect where then it, it, it actually lowered people's guards further to be like, oh, we can trust this brand because this brand is telling us what it's doing. So that was an interesting part of it. So you're not running the Stakem Twitter account now, but are they still a client? No, no. We uh, we stopped working with them. I think officially the contract ran out last December. So you, you set it in place and wherever they want to take it now. I don't know. It's a little like when Steve Carell left the office. Or maybe it's more like when David Lee Roth left Van Halen. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be. It's it's to be determined, I guess. We'll see. Like, it's it's they've tried some different stuff while still trying to maintain some of the tone since, since I left. When you pass something off like that, you have to give people room to do their own thing with it. And whether that works or not, I guess we'll we'll see. 
Yeah, or maybe you'll uh, come over the top subtweeting them as White Castle, calling them, <laughs> calling them out, dunking on them. Who knows? Yeah, right. It's all possible. That'd be the most meta thing ever if like, I came through another brand and was like, this is the Steakum guy through this other brand now. Like, come over. I got it. I got it perfectly. <laughs> You're Del Monte ketchup and you're refusing to be put on a steakum <laughs> <laughs> it can't be Heinz right it has to be Hunter Del Monte that's right we gotta we gotta punch up that's 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 the name of the game so <laughs> Nathan Alabach is the creative director of Alabach Communications thank you yeah thanks for chatting Mike it was fun And now the spiel. So I was looking at Title 18 of the U.S. Criminal Code, Section 2071, or concealment, removal, or mutilation generally. I'm like, is this about the nuclear codes or is this about pimples? Do you remove, conceal, or mutilate? I like to pop. You maybe get a dermatologist to Lance. No big whoop. All right. That is the comedy stylings of the FBI warrant. But of course, that section of the criminal code and the others, as has been reported by Breitbart? Reading this correctly, Breitbart? They have been cited as an indication that maybe we needed, after all, to remove those items from a basement in West Palm Beach. If from the moment it was revealed that the FBI had served a warrant to the calls of politicization, to the counter calls of fidelity to law, to calls of overreach, to counter calls of reach, I ask, what if no one had said anything in between those developments? What if we just had a newspaper story every day, or I'll go even better, a cable news, you know, three or four channels covering this, four or five news websites that amalgamated, conglomerated the news? What if everyone behaved in the way they should have before any information was known, or the way they would have had this news broken 20 years ago. So I'm not talking 1932. I'm not talking before the advent of telegraphs. I'm not even talking three big networks and Uncle Walter Cronkite. Just let's go to 2002. There was a Fox network. People had email. There were some message boards. Rush Limbaugh existed. But what if there wasn't a constant dopamine delivery system in all our pockets, a perpetual reaction machine that we were all hooked up to? Things would certainly be calmer. One camo-wearing wastrel may or may not have been inspired to assault Cincinnati FBI headquarters with carpentry tools. The Drudge Report, 2002, existed, but it wasn't injecting its findings into the political bloodstream. The insane overreactions of the far right would exist, but they would stay on the far right. I don't know if Representative Dan Burton was quite as bonkers as his current-day analogs, Reps Goser, Bobert, and Taylor Green. But if he was, he wasn't letting us in on that a dozen times in every afternoon. The online bulletin board for neo-Nazis Stormfront, that was established in 1996. That would have existed. But again, it stayed to itself. The 2002 version of Charlie Kirk, who would have been a Rush or a Bob Grant, may well have said some of the nonsense that the real Charlie Kirk in 2022 said after Nailgun Guy tried to bring down the FBI with a cordless Black and Decker. We have said repeatedly to remain peaceful and stay focused on constructive things that we can do. They're now going to try to play the victim after they occupied Donald Trump's home, a military occupation. Look, let me be very clear. 
Violence against law enforcement is not tolerated. We shouldn't talk. We shouldn't allow it. We shouldn't even get close to encouraging it. But that cannot allow us to keep our eye off the ball. Some numb nuts or maybe some numb nutses would have said something like that. But you had to be inside his audience to hear it. Would an unwell listener have taken that as a call to arms? Or would they hear those framing devices, don't hurt law enforcement, and actually take them seriously? When you heard it, did you say, oh, he's got to say that to get his real message across, that it was a military occupation? Did you say, yeah, he's doing a paralypsis, like, I don't want to say to hurt the police, but I know the way that I encountered that clip and the way I thought about it was highly influenced by how I got to it, which is, I don't subscribe to Charlie Kirk, but on my Twitter timeline, it showed up from three different sources, Media Matters for America, the white supremacist researcher, Catherine Ballou. And in all those cases, they highlighted the military occupation of the quote, and they didn't tell you that around it, he said, now don't hurt anyone. I don't know how much that matters. I'm just saying in 2002, if somehow you heard the quote, you would have heard the quote without framing of, this is the real way to hear the quote. There is a lot of GOP hysteria over the Mar-a-Lago search, but there's also a lot of headlines like Dana Milbanks in the Washington Post, GOP hysteria over the Mar-a-Lago search is an invitation to violence, or this one in the Atlantic by Peter Wenner. Now they're calling for violence. Trump loyalists have reacted to the search for the ex-president's Mar-a-Lago residency with unhinged fury, not saying they haven't, but who does Dana Milbank quote? He quotes Gosar. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Boebert, twice. You could do that with a lot of stories. Wenner quotes a couple of those, ends with the words, today it is Lincoln's party that wants America to die by suicide. If it were 2002, the speed and metastasizing of information would not be where it is now. There would be reactions and there would be counter reactions, but there wouldn't be this accelerated cycle of hyper overreaction and overreaction to the last reaction. Nothing brought to a boil is ever allowed to cool in 2022. News cycles, when we used to have news cycles, they're like speed bumps. They're like pauses between courses. You can digest and let your never-ending hunger catch up to itself. We are not in that time. If we were, I think this entire story plays out entirely differently. There was a warrant served. Conservatives questioned the fairness. The attorney general clarified. Reporting indicates the contents may have been quite serious. Gatekeepers, remember gatekeepers? They were pretty despised. Well, in the antediluvian days they were, but they served the purpose of defining what the news was each day or even the sections of the day and not allowing just anyone to go nuts with the implications thereof. We had scandals back then. We had distracting scandals and we had bonafide, soul-rending, what is America doing scandals. Abu Ghraib, that broke in 2003. But a little time, a little cooling off period, it didn't slow the momentum. What it did is it allowed us to get to equilibrium in between every development or perception thereof. The outrage over what's going on with the boxes may well turn out to be warranted. But in 2022, consideration of the question isn't permissible. Judgment off the table. We're bombarded by stimulus and response. The news isn't analyzed. We're all adrenalized. Flight or in most cases, fight. Frenzied, unfocused fight.
And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Ian Scotto did a great job helping out the show this week. Michelle Pesca once ran the Necco Wafers Tumblr page. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, gpru, dupru, and thanks for listening.